stories turn songs into symphonies, events into memories, and lives into legends. In our crowded world, knowing your story cuts through the noise so you can make your mark, whether you want to sell more books, increase profits, or just make a difference. At Sterling & Stone, story is our business. The Story Studio Podcast is where we explore ways we can all tell our stories better. And now, with the Story Studio Podcast number 22, here's Johnny, Sean, and Dave. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Studio. Today, we're going to be talking about um, character, and next week, we're going to be talking about setting. So, following up on uh, when we talked last time with uh, with Bonnie about um, found, uh, just foundations of story and then premise. So, this is this is like story... Not even 101. Like, people know story 101. This is like story 202, something like that. But anyway, so um, so character. Why weren't college wait, classes wait. ever 102 instead of... Yeah, I would like to... Exp- I have not oh, gone, I need gone to, to college, this to Johnny. Yourself? You need to explain this to two-thirds of your... Um, your <laughs> the two-thirds of the hosts are dropouts. We know go to school. All right. Who don't understand. We talk pretty one day. 101 oh. is introductory... <laughs> Like if you took a one oh a basic freshman biology course, it'd be one oh one, and then okay. you would have maybe the second semester or something. You would have a follow on that would be one oh two or one oh three. Is it because it's always on the first floor and the smarter people go like up? You, you move you, up it's, in in okay. uh, in the building. No. Then when you get to the very top, they put a crown on you. But like, or, second, or when you get to the top, you find out you're all the way at the bottom. Dun dun dun. Then they shoot you in the head. So this, but this, the two hundred two is like, or two hundred one is like introductory for the next level up, if that makes sense. And then two hundred two, and then two hundred three. So it's like Scientology, something like that. But it was exactly. really weird. Like you'd get ones, and it'd be like four fifty four or something. And well, who decided that name? That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> anyway, college sounds too this. confusing. I'm glad I skipped it. <laughs> It is. <laughs> uh, I feel like it costs more than Scientology. Here. <laughs> Do you think they'll have this one-on-one shit figured out by the time Haley's ready in two years? Maybe. Uh, so character. So character. We're going to talk about what makes a believable character, what makes a compelling character, why character is really, um, really important. Actually, I Can think we talk that- about some of our favorite characters? And our least favorite characters. I would like to talk about. You mean in our books or in other people's? No, books? no. I mean, in, in I general. think like in general because I think you know if we talk pop culture villains, like it's way more interesting to talk Hannibal Lecter, for example, yeah. than Mauricio, even though like you know, Mauricio bite your great. tongue. Mauricio is <laughs> a much better character. Well, Mauricio has more going on, maybe. Um, before you get to the TV show, then they they go to town with uh, with Hannibal. Well, I think maybe a good place to, I mean, yes, I think we should do that, but I think that maybe a good place to start with character is sort of this premise is that no character exists in a vacuum, which is the way I think a lot of people treat them. Like, oh, I need a character to serve this function. So here's this character. Like that character has a backstory. That character, you know, in the fictional world had a family and had things happen to them that made them how they are. And the idea that even the quote unquote worst, that there are no good or bad characters. They're all the hero of their own story. I think those are things a lot of people miss. Yeah. We're doing a, uh, uh, what do you call it? One of a genre therapy call. It's actually what I'm doing right after we're done recording today. Um, There's going to be the first of the four genre therapy calls that we're doing. And I got the little, uh, like the playbook for the first person. I I have not met this person, um, but they had a questionnaire to fill out 
And sure enough, it's exactly the same thing that you always see. I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what I'm writing, but the, the, this particular individual, it came down to character. And he said, I feel like I'm not selling books because not only am I hopping around on, on, from genre to genre, but I, I'm treating plot as more important than character. And I realized that's a mistake. It's, you know, every time I'm writing a book, it's about what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next, instead of who is it going to happen to. And that's, that's a big, that's always a big mistake. Did he and, write the Da Vinci Code by chance? <laughs> well, I, I don't think they... Sooner or later, somebody's going to call uh, us on uh, shitting uh, on the Da Vinci Code because, you know, it did, did okay. <laughs> well, right. I don't think you'd be. I don't think he'd be emailing me his genre therapy information <laughs> because It'd be the joke, I man. I know Dan Brown was Dan able Brown to, is just um, like rolling around on his piles of millions of dollars and going. You keep saying that Sterling and Stone. <laughs> his butler yeah, just think, came to him and said, "Those assholes are talking about you again." Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> it's like when King's laughing about our lack of respect for his endings. Right. <laughs> it's like fuck. To be those fair, guys. you were the one that laughed at King. I never did anything but worship at his feet. Thank you. Goodbye. Um, have you you've well that's of course you've never finished the books that's how true. would you have anything to oh, yes, about? I have I finished the only one I didn't the, finish of his was a stand no you get to the good parts of Stephen King you get to all the wedding scenes and then you're you're out all you right. don't have to you don't have to get to the end of it yeah, I finished, where there's like uh, okay two books I haven't finished uh, did you finish I'm, it this show has three, no three center. books I haven't finished and you wonder okay, why I, I wonder like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I would like to know if you finished it because no. you would have nothing but negative things to say about Stephen King's <clears throat> endings because that one makes it. up for I like 10 up, terrible endings. endings. All right, okay. Okay, so now <laughs> let's talk about what it does right, though, which is characters. I still, even as angry as I am about the, the ending of it all these years later, I think I read it in fifth grade, so it's been a while. I'm still like agitated, but I still remember how much I bonded with those characters, um, both their their childhood versions and their 1985 versions. You know, they're, they were rich. I believed them. I, I believed their thoughts. I believed their actions. Um, everything worked together. So would you guys argue, would you agree that that's kind of what has made King so enduring is it's not just he has great premises, but it's that he has great characters and that you can actually believe them? Yeah. Oh, yeah, his writing is... Sorry, no, his writing is very, uh, very easy to get into because he does nail characters so well. He puts you inside their heads, uh, especially specific kinds of characters. Um, yeah, I, I think he does that probably better than anyone else that I read anyway. Yeah, I would say, I would say yes and no. I mean, certainly he had the strength of his horror originally with the shorts when he was publishing in magazines and stuff that, you know, he had to have good chops in his genre but that said, I think that character, I think he nails a certain familiar slice of Americana very, very well in terms of character. He's not right. Just, like he may not be able to do like a French aristocrat or something, but the blue collar. You haven't seen the new book. No, but like think of our, <laughs> think of the criticism we've gotten about Meyer Dempsey in Invasion. Like King is not going to get that particular criticism, not that that's apples to apples, because Meyer is a privileged, rich asshole. And he doesn't, like, he writes very normal folks. He writes, you know, uh, like, below, what's the, like, lower middle class almost folks, just working class people. Yeah, he, he's fantastic at that working class American voice. And regardless of what situation he puts his characters into, that's the people. Like, it's, it's real salt of the earth. And so... 
Well, as a matter of fact, I think that I remember seeing, and it may have even been in On Writing, where he talks about what he likes to do, because King is a famous pantser, and we could ar- argue maybe to his detriment in, in the endings, but he says that what he likes to do is to, I forget the quote, it was kind of a cute quote the way he put it, it was something like, um, you know, create a, I'm going to butchering it, but create like a rich cast of characters, make the reader feel sorry for them and then set the monsters loose was basically the idea. <laughs> and you can see that, like look at the beginning of like desperation or something where you're just learning about this couple and these people that are, you know, that all end up in this jail rounded up by the sheriff and you're just, you just know about them. You don't know where they're going. I mean, you know, literally where they're going, but you don't know where the story's going. You just know, okay, that guy's interesting. That person's interesting. Um, do you remember the guy in the Langoliers? I think is Craig Toomey. He was like a, a, a stockbroker under pressure or something. He reminds me of a little of a character that we have in one of our books recently, and he tore strips of paper. That was his quirk. He would just constantly be shredding paper. And the guy was just wound super tight because he was like on his last chance. He had to get to his destination and close a deal or he was going to be really, really fucked. And you just watched him go through this extraordinary circumstance with all these other people. And you just knew that at some point this dude was going to explode because he had this like real tension. Oh, was he like, like Simon? Yeah, that's who I was thinking. He reminded me a little of Simon. Uh-huh. Simon reminded me of him. Yeah, that that that's cool. I can see that. Um, well, he, well, ki- no, sorry, Dave. Go. Uh, uh, he, uh, he's good at like what Johnny was saying. He's good at like showing you the little things that that people do, uh, like you know, showing versus telling uh, about people and their uh, personality flaws and. I think that's something that you only get when you pay attention to people. And uh, he's definitely paid attention to people throughout his life. And that's why he writes him so well. Yeah. I think he, he does pay attention to the details, but he's also really honest. He allows his characters good, bad, indifferent, whatever. They all are real because they're, they're flawed and they're honest. And this is maybe perhaps a silly example, but I I remember it. And it's a book that apparently I remember better than King. Because if you read on writing, he says he doesn't remember a word of Cujo. Right. And I remember something very specific about Cujo that, I don't know, 30 years ago, I read the book. But I I remember this. And I remember thinking it was really funny at the time because I was 10. But now... I think it's it's interesting for a much different reason. And he's there's this one character, he's the mailman and he rides a bike. Um, because I guess it's it's rural Maine and he's you know going from neighbor to neighbor and he keeps farting. And he's like every time he swings his leg, like, okay, drops off mail, gets back on the bike, <laughs> drops off mail, gets back on the bike. And every time he gets back on the bike, he farts. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's King talking about how he's getting older now and the dude can't control his bowels and and all of that. And as a 10-year-old kid, I just think it's hilarious because, um, you know, <laughs> this mailman keeps farting. But as an author, like... a lot of apples. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys missed the game, the pre-show. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, it's... That's, like, a little humiliating for this postman. But it's still, for the time that you spend being in his head... You're you're there, warts and all. Do you um you you guys know in the stand, Dave? This is pretty close to the wedding scene, so you may have read this part um, where Captain Trips is actually spreading, and he does that whole like I don't know, it's maybe fifty pages or so, but it could be way less. Where he's it's showing the actual spread of the disease, and 
you're not with any character for very long at all. And I think some of them are even just a couple of paragraphs. But you're you're still, he has a way of making you bond to these people who are going to contract this disease very deeply in a very short period of time. That's all character work. And that dude is a master at that. Yeah, what this reminds me of, I was actually going to raise a sim- an example that's very similar. And I say, I mean, that we're giving you these examples because I think that this is the sort of thing that you can like, I don't know, take to a greater or lesser degree. I think that there's a lesson in this. Uh, but it... it it reminds me of a, li- a little bit of the way the way the king treats minor characters reminds me a little bit of if you were a master painter and you were going to paint a crowd scene and you painted somebody in great detail that you knew you were going to put somebody in front of. Right. So it's like, you know, you don't even know he's back there, but he's in great detail. So um, in I just recently re- reread uh, The Regulators. Did you read that? Um, a long time. Is that the one that's, that's, uh, related to desperation? Yes. It's the vans like the, yes, that's the one I read. I never read desperation. I read desperation, but not regulated. Yeah. They're both good. Uh, this is, this is going to sound like a spoiler for regulators. It actually isn't because it occurs very early in the book. Um, but there's a character, I want to say her name's Mary Jackson and she's coming back to the neighborhood where all this is happening. And there's like basically this gunfire and this assault. And, um, she has just gone to a hotel where she's had an affair with a guy. She was, she's had a you know a dalliance with a guy that she's been having an affair with for a long time. And there's a lot of detail. A lot of people cheat in Stephen King books too. Yeah, there's a lot there's of a lot detail of and like inner turmoil. And she's she's not wearing her panties because she lost them somewhere along the way, and she's worried that her husband's gonna, I don't know, something's gonna happen. And so I remember that I had forgotten the book when I read, because I'd read it before. So I read it again and I had forgotten the way that this unfolds. So this is the spoilery part again. It so doesn't matter, but if you don't want to hear it, then skip ahead. But um, she's then immediately killed. And it's like, (laughs) I'm just waiting for like, I I was fooled into thinking she must be important. The secret is going to come out. No, it doesn't matter. It's very psycho. Yeah. It's, it's very psycho. It doesn't matter. Yeah. He will make you absolutely bond with the, the minor character. You know, you know what his character work is like? Okay, so you've seen Monsters, Inc., right? Yes. And you know that scene where uh, they're, uh, they first bring Boo home and she's running all around and saying, Mike Wazowski. And, uh, you know, he, she knocks over the CDs. No. The but stack of CDs. Sure. And then okay, well, there's her? No, no. There's a oh, whole stack of CDs. <laughs> CDs and um, and Billy Crystal said or Mike Wazowski says uh, those were in order. Well, okay, actually they were. Pixar actually rendered I, the whole stack. There was a, each one of them was a, um, a made-up monster band with a full-on cover, and they were in alphabetical order. Even though the shot is less than a second, he just goes like this, and they scatter all over. But they still put that attention a detail into like a throwaway joke like that, because whether you see it or not, they know their world is more real. And I think that when you really dig deep into characters and, and clearly King digs deep into his characters, it does make the whole world feel more substantial. Like it, it just has more weight and more gravity to everything. You know, I want to say just a brief aside, um, because I love video game worlds, but one of the things I hate is uh, some of the open world games, like you'll go inside somebody's house and you'll see all the same books on the bookshelf, like that were in another house, the same photos, and it just completely destroys the uh, illusion or an immersion uh, that's going on. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's too bad they can't individually render every single interior. <laughs> it's um, yeah, Well, I mean, they do other things. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that they are able to do that astounds me. So you think they could also do that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I'm actually with you here because they could do a, like a randomizer or something. You yeah. know, cr- create 10,000 books and then each shelf just pulls. But but yes, <laughs> I'm just, I'm messing with you. Um. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with character that, like, a lot of people try to... It's interesting that you said that King is honest about his characters because I think there's a big difference between being honest and what most storytellers do, including us usually, is attempting to cheat the rules a little bit and change characters just enough so that you're on their side. So um, here's an example that I'm going to give, and this is fresh because we just talked about this two days ago, I think, one day ago, yesterday is um, we just watched and discussed for The Stone Table, Let Me In, vampire movie. And we were talking about how, spoiler for Let Me In, um, (laughs) Abby the vampire kills innocents, right? Like she kills a bunch of people who, and there's Not just kills them, but violently, like puts an end to them and right with no remorse. In an animal sort of way. Yes, yes, but but including not just random people. Like you see a couple people like, okay, well, that guy's a teenager. Teenagers are assholes. He probably deserved to go. The bullies at the end, fine. But like good people who are also- Has you been know, set up as good people. Like I'm thinking of the cop, yeah. right? Or just the lady yes, right, with, right. with the dog. Well, and the, cop is the, the cop is the one, the really one, because he's the one out there trying to save innocent lives. He has, and his, his character arc is basically- to get feasted upon at the end. So that kind of so stuff. Are you going to get mad at a bear for eating a human that just happened to get in its way? Only if they're well, cookies. <laughs> no, I'm, like I'm if Yogi not. Bear ate the park ranger. Well, but that's that's the him. that's actually what the point I'm trying to make about justified versus honest. Because we what what I would do, and I'm just so this isn't me saying that anybody did anything right or wrong. Because I'm telling you, I'd do the other. I would try and tell a story where if I wanted people to get behind the vampire character and I wasn't trying to make some other point, um, I would twist reality just a bit so that that character, or I would put it into the character character's nature or something that she hunts down. I actually did this a little bit with fat vampire. Um, you know, the vampire has to feed. That would be the honest truth. If such a thing were real. And, um, but you would typically see, okay, well, if it's a good vampire, quote unquote, that we want to believe, we want to feel for, then you would have them seek out bad people to feast on or something like that. Well, yeah, Dave, talk about did available Johnny darkness. Steal that from available darkness, you bastard. <laughs> well, but, yeah, but right. I so, mean, I did things, similar things with Fat Vampire. Like he yeah. he goes to every length he can to not not eat people. So th- there's a there's a book that was recently recommended uh, that I got, Matt Bird's The Secrets of Story, and I haven't gotten too far into it, but uh, he does talk in the beginning about uh, character work, and he says one of the one of the ways to get people uh, on the side of the character, uh, even if it's like a bad character that you shouldn't like, but you you need them, you, you need the people to like them for some reason, is to show um, show a way that they've been misunderstood. Like maybe you'd have this bad guy like try to do something nice, but the other characters like mistake it for something horrible, and all of a sudden there's uh, there's this this because you relate to it because there's been times in your life where you've tried to do the right thing, and it was shit all over. So it automatically creates a reader sympathy uh, when you do something like that. 
Right. Making your characters more human in any kind of way. I mean, whether it is farting when they get on a, you know, a bike or being misunderstood in some very specific ways, as soon as we, our human experience uh, intersects with their human experience, that it becomes really easy to believe their humanity and therefore we feel empathy and we relate and we're glued to the story. Well, we're, we're usually hungry for why. So this reminds me of that, that social curiosity where if you use the word because, like oh, yeah. people comply. So the, the story goes like this. I think I heard it on a Tony Robbins thing or something, but there, you know, you've seen it in other places where, um, if like there, the example that is usually given is there are a bunch of people in line for a copier and it's a long line. This is from the book influence. Okay. So they're all trying to make copies and everybody's got to wait their turn to make copies. And, um, they did experiments where they had somebody try to basically cut in line and get ahead. And it turned out that if somebody said, um, Hey, you know, can I please get in front of you? Because I, um, because I, I'm really rushed right now and my boss is yelling at me. Okay, that would work. But then you start tweaking it. Um, um, can I get in front of you because I need to pick my kid up from school? Can I get in front of you because... And what they realized was all that mattered was the because. Yeah, and so you They're be talking like, about like a 0.3% difference. Right. Regardless so, of how ridiculous. So yeah. can I get in front of you because I need to make some copies? Like that's self-evident, <laughs> but people would typically do it. So I think that what Dave is alluding to there and what I think you can do with good characters is you can paint them in a really bad light as long as you show the reader or the viewer why it is that they're doing, why they're like that. So like you have a really, really heinous character. Um, I assume you guys did some of this with Baricio in Yesterday's Gone, where if you show a little bit of their backstory, you know, they were abused as a kid or something like, usually that will get the reader a little bit more on their side because at least there's that because. Yeah, we dipped deep into that well. (laughs) (laughs) But we also went the other way so far. Like he was a necrophiliac. I mean, how do you make somebody really to that? Well, I don't think he was a necrophiliac, so well, an opportunist, right? <laughs> but but you fuck okay. one dead person, all of a sudden you're labeled. <laughs> okay, let, let's let's actually stick with Baricio because there were interesting character things that there there were challenges. If you don't know Baricio, he's pretty repugnant. Yeah, he's the. There's two interesting things to note about him as a collective inkwell, if not a Sterling and Stone in general character. He is a the most foul character I think that we've ever written. I don't know Paul Dodd in the new um, uh, in the No Justice series is he's is, foul, but he's not fun. <laughs> he's right, right. Baricio is a repugnant human, but the difference is Paul Dodd. We don't want people to like him. We want the reader to hate him, you know, be fascinated by him. Sure, in the same way, you know, I, I would say Baricio has more in common with with um, Hannibal Lecter. In the fact that he is a like atrocious human and a monster, but the reader or the viewer is is very interested in what he's going to do next. We also can't help but be fascinated by this you know, guy. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one of the interesting things is like because um, I did worry that um, Baricio would go too far in alienating people, even though he was he was supposed to be that character in that book. I mean, it's post apocalyptic world, and this guy is like the worst of the worst. And um, the way the way we wrote him, and you wrote much of him early on uh, for the first couple of books, uh, he, he was just like 
id. Like he just did whatever the hell he wanted. I think people responded to that because people feel like they he's can't all do, alpha. They can't do what they want. They can't say what they want. And uh, and it, it, what really surprised, like I expected guys to like him, uh, but so many like like grandmothers would email <laughs> still to this day. Like I know I shouldn't like him, but I love Mauricio. <laughs> It's yeah, also yeah. funny, though, and that goes along. Right. Well, that's where I was going next, is I think that we knew we had a, a, a job with Baricio. There's two weapons that Baricio, that we we gave him and we kept really sharp. Um, one was intelligence. He's just fun. Like, he's fun to read because he's smart. And he's really opinionated. So it's kind of fun to... I mean, he's opinionated about, like, trivial shit, too. Not just the more tattoos you have means you hate your parents more. Yeah, right. He's got <laughs> huge opinions on Applebee's and McDonald's. He has like I think a five hundred page, or sorry, like a five hundred word rant on McNuggets in the fourth book. There, there, there are a few another times. one on Garth Brooks in the fifth book. There's a few times where his hates kind of inter- cross over with mine. <laughs> right. Well, Dave's like, oh, I it's my turn to write Baricio. <laughs> Garth Brooks it is. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. Not just Garth Brooks, but Garth Brooks' smelly cowboy hat. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, do you want me to... I know exactly where the line is if you want me to find it. Uh, but for, for, for Baricio, we had... Um, we had to keep him intelligent because that really kept the reader engaged. What's he going to do next? What's he going to figure out? Um, we definitely kept him a leader and we kept him um, funny because that's a great way to um, engage the reader. How can you hate a character if you're laughing at what that character says? You may be uncomfortable a little bit. You may dislike the character, but you can't honestly say you hate that character because you've been complicit. You've laughed too. And so making putting Baricio in some really horrendous situations where he could engage the reader through like an emotion as pure as laughter um, was a great challenge as an author. But I think it's one of the things that made that book and those characters really special. Um, I had something I was going to say and I totally forgot. I think that, but showing that justification can be a great way of, um, of really uh, well, let me go a different way because we talked about backstory and stuff, remembering that everybody has a backstory, whether you see it or not, and the, the degree to which you show it. I mean, there's also you can do the the um, save the cat or kick the dog sorts of things, I suppose, <laughs> where if you want to indicate that, a, uh, you know, that a character should be loathed by people, then you could have him do something heinous when nobody is looking or um, something heroic if you want them on his side, which is the save the cat thing. Um but intelligence, like making them really interesting. Um, some of my favorite character work, I know I've talked about this before, is in um, the the 2000s Battlestar Galactica. I don't know when that ran. I want to say around 2010-ish. Is that right? Maybe I think on. it ended it. I think it ended it in 2010. So like 2004, maybe. But continually in that, um, so like Gaius Baltar, he's the character that you love to hate. And he really is repugnant. I mean, I watched it again. I've watched the entire series twice. And so, so you I, keep expecting him to be more redeemed than he is. He's just not. No, he really isn't. And yet at the same time, I just can't find myself shrugging and going, okay, well, I, I believe that. I believe that that's that guy. I, it, it makes sense to me. I really don't like him. And why don't they kill him off? So that's another thing too. Like you see really bad characters in a, in a book where there's, or a movie where there's peril. And it's really easy to be like, well, they'll kill him off. Well, no, 
because, you know, that doesn't always conveniently happen in real life. You don't just automatically get the bad guys to go away. But what I really like is the good characters, the quote-unquote good characters, like Adama and the president, um, do bad things. And it's like, well, that's also honest. You know, are they in pursuit of a greater good? Well, you could argue in either direction. But that's that's what, I'm trying to remember, we had a discussion about this, Sean, we were trying to decide whether somebody was, whether their motivations were good or bad or whether they were a good or a bad character. And and it was kind of like, I think I said something like, well, you know, he wants this, but he also kind of wants this. And he want, you know, like he had all these conflicted things and you said, oh, so he's a human being. Like that was the response. <laughs> Well, yeah. So, so Jen and I were, um, were were mapping something out this morning and trying to really escalate things, and you know, figure like how does how can this get really bad? Um, you know, because we have a certain period of time, and so this is an episodic thing that we're mapping out, and we're still like on episode two right now. But we know where the season is going to end. We know where we're going, and so we have to you know, very, uh, calculate it, graduate, you know, every single episode, there's a little more of that. And, uh, and we referenced Breaking Bad at how well Vince Gilligan does that. Um, you know, well, in all of his shows, he really is the king of backstory. He, he, he all of his characters, you understand how they became who they are and, and why they behave the way that they do. If you look at, um, Better Call Saul, the, 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 the backstory as to, you know, the relationship between Saul and his brother is just kind of amazing the way they, they put it together layer by layer. And in Breaking Bad, you know, Walter, Walter all along from the very first episode, if you take any of his decisions individually, you can pretty much see where he's coming from. Just isolate them individually one at a time, especially in the beginning. Okay, so you're gonna cook a little mess, <laughs> but you know he's got, he's dying. He's trying to get cash for his family. Like he's he's all about the purity, and he's not getting involved with the actual sales of it. Like there's all these little isolated things, but then the cumulative effect of his decisions are kind of monstrous. They're kind of horrible, and so that pulling the camera back and seeing the web of our decisions is different and it casts our characters in a totally different light. I've heard Vince Gilligan talk about how they kind of like what we did with Baricio, they actively wanted to make you hate Walter. Uh, and I wonder, I wonder if, um, cause I don't know if I've ever, if they were doing a podcast when Walter let that girl die in Jesse's bed. Yeah. Uh, but I'm that's curious. his defining moment right there. And a lot of people I know that love the show hated him after that. Like actively wanted him to fucking pay for that. Uh, like that was the one that went too far for a lot of people. And I wonder in the writer's room how much conversation they had about that. Like, no, we have to do this to justify the Well, end. it sure as hell seems honest. It sure as hell <laughs> seems like that Walter at that moment would have made that decision. But TV typically would not have pushed their character to do the honest thing. But it, 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 they, got, they, got you, they got you with Walter early on because he was just so shit upon and he was so powerless and he was dying and uh, everything he did was uh, just worked against him. He was trying to do the right thing and it worked against him. Uh, so there was... Like you had a sympathy for him all along. And I think the, the one payoff I felt anyway... Uh, 
with Walter, like when he just became total badass, was that whole "I'm the one that knocks" thing? Oh <laughs> yeah, that's the best that, episode. I was, like, applauding, like that is so fucking awesome. <laughs> Even yeah, that's some of the. Horrible. It seems like no, that's awesomeness. some of the best dialogue of this decade. It seems like awesomeness or intrigue does go a long way because while you were describing like you know, not liking Walter and stuff. I was thinking of a very different character, uh, Frank from Shameless. So if you haven't seen Shameless, I don't want to spoil anything, but he does some really, really, really repugnant shit. And there are a bunch of times (laughs) where I'm like, okay, that's too far. Like there are a few things where it's just, it's really like objectively too far. Like a jury would agree that that was too far. (laughs) And I wish I could name it, but I don't want to spoil something. And and there's two or three. Oh, there's so many of them though. Well, there's a bunch that are really shitty. And then there are some that are just like, okay, now you're some sort of a criminal and not even in like a, I don't know. And, um, but yet you still, you're still kind of, you hang in there with Frank and he, you know what it is? What's interesting about Frank, Frank is, um, um, William H. Macy, William H. Macy. And he's, he's very, very well played. And what's interesting about Frank, the character, it's his best role ever for sure. What's interesting. I don't know. I mean, he was pretty good in mystery men. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, no, his, uh, what's interesting about it is his character acts like his character acts for you, the viewer, the way that he acts, he is with his family. So Frank, if you haven't seen Shameless, Frank is the sort of derelict alcoholic fuck up father of these, like what, seven kids? I don't remember who have to make it on their own because their father's just a total fucker. And so he, they continually like kick him out. There are many scenes where they're like throwing him out the front door or beating him up or something. But then they always worms his way back in. And there he is again. There's Frank. Why did they let him in? And I think that's the way I felt as a viewer because I'm like, every single time I went, Jesus, that is too far. Then I (laughs) I found myself in another episode being like, okay, I guess he's back. I guess I like him again. Well, what what do you think is, okay, so when there's a character that does go too far, is there something that Frank could have done that is just like you can't ever see your way back or can he always see his way back because that's what good writing is. Well, I want to say the, I want to, can I give the, the spoiler and just warn that I'm going to give it? Because, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Cause I feel like I need to do this. So it, there's a, this is a spoiler for shameless maybe midway through. So if you don't want to hear this, just skip ahead 60 seconds. And I'm actually curious which one you're going with. Cause there, there's there a are bunch. A okay. So skip ahead a few minutes. Dave's actually going to skip out. It's when he wants, he's, he's with that woman who he wants to collect her money when she dies because oh. she's got the heart <laughs> defect. And then, yeah. and then the guy calls and says that there's a heart for her and he just doesn't <laughs> give her the message and she dies. And you're like, dude, he fucking killed her. Like she had a transplant and that I remember thinking, okay, that's too far. Like he can't come back from that, but he yeah, did because he's fictional. If he were a real person, it would be different. I think. Well, it, it's, it's, hold on. I got to tell Dave he can listen now. <laughs> listen again. Oh, Dave. Okay. Uh, oh, I think it's different. Uh, I, I do think it's different because I think in, in, in real life, you have to actually interact with that person and you have to worry about, um, you know, that person's effect on your life or your children or something where in uh, in a show or a book you can like, okay, I enjoy Baricio a lot. I wouldn't ever want to be in the same room with Baricio ever. Although I would want to be on his team if I had to, <laughs> if I had to big teams in the apocalypse, right? Just because I'd feel 
safer. But okay, l- let's talk about like bad characters when people get it wrong, because there's a lot of this too. So what are bad characters on TV and books or characters that we're not even remembering, movies that failed because of character work? Well, I watched an example of what I thought was kind of ridiculous character work last night, but I know why. And it's almost a stylistic, it is very much a stylistic and genre choice. Um, So I find it very hard to believe the characters in Riverdale. Oh, yeah. But I'm with you. But I get what they're doing. You're watching Riverdale? Yeah, because I watched Riverdale. Because Sean (laughs) mentioned it and I said, and then Robin liked it. And it's just, I get what they're doing. Like, that's a We watch TV with our wives, asshole. (laughs) It's a very dramatic genre. And there's that whole thing. Like, you need to have these over the top characters. It's the CW. Yeah. That's why. Like, it is stylistic there. But yeah, it's the, their some character of the choices. Dialogue, are... I'm just like, what? Like nobody really talks like that. But I get what they're doing, and I'm sure it's all very intentional. I felt that way about Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls struck me as very real. I like it, but the dialogue was so unrealistic. Not for no, me. Oh, it's, it's well, not maybe not for Sean. No, that's not unrealistic dialogue <laughs> at all. Oh, okay, I mean, all right. It's fast. It's patter patter. It's it's unrealistic in the same way that. It's like it's it's CW. It's a lot terms, of monologue you know, shoved into everyday speech. People don't really speak like that. But they don't Dude, monologue. You know, They're bantering. You, yeah, you don't have friends. That's the difference. Like, you don't is. <laughs> if you had friends, you would understand that sometimes people. That's people probably have those it. I only know myself. It's very sad, Dave. Get out of your cave. Um, no, I, I I do hear what you're saying. It's very like because it's manner. Like it's it it is very scripted. But I um, liked the show, by the way. I just thought it was a little over the top, unbelievable. But it's not like Riverdale, which is very. No, like, I, I can't watch that shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would probably have given up if Robin wasn't into it. OK, have you seen the, the whole first season? Me? Yes. OK, so at some Dave's point we should talk about. It. Oh, we can't talk no. about. We don't want to spoil stuff. end to end, I suppose. No, no. I just want to talk about the sticky maple episode and be like, what the fuck? Like, but we could do it off camera. <laughs> Um, okay. What about when someone tries to, um, save a really thin character with, um, like, uh, cool lines? Does that ever work? I need an example. Well, okay. So, um, my sister and I saw Rampage a couple of months ago. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying that the character work in Rampage was thin? (laughs) Yes. What? (laughs) Yes, it was terrible. But... There was one guy who just jumped off the screen every single Rock. time he was there. No, um, it was a guy uh, from The Negan. Walking Dead. You've mentioned it. Yeah, yeah, the actor who plays Negan, and I, it, like, it's the only line I remember from the entire movie was he walks in, and they, you know, he's got a couple lines, and he's just chewing the scenery up. He loves this shit, and then they ask him, you know, who are you? And he goes, <clears throat> when science shits the bed. I changed the sheets. And so like it was, he delivered it really well and he clearly liked being in the movie and it was enjoyable, but still it doesn't, it didn't elevate the movie around him. It wasn't like really clever. I mean, it's not even a clever line. It's just kind of funny in his delivery, but that's never going to save a show or a book or, or anything. Do you guys disagree? Have you ever found like a, a character is able to, I guess TV is different because you have an actor who can inhabit the role and bring enough personality because really that's what he did. He brought enough personality to make that 
like the that, beginning of every CSI Miami where uh, David Caruso would take off his shades and say some fucking clever thing. It, it just annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I never saw that. Oh, it was, it's so cheesy. Uh, yeah, I, it'll work if you care enough about the characters. Uh, and it seems like, you know, something that they would do or something that they would say. Like, I, I mean, this is probably a bad example, but I mean, Spider-Man says goofy shit all the time in the comics and, you know, he's just goofy like that and you accept it. Um, I but, don't. <laughs> just, just me, though. <laughs> Johnny hates superheroes, in case you're just tuning in. I don't hate him. I dislike most of them, though. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Batman's okay, though, because he's real. Yeah, he's real. Um, yeah, I don't know my... Uh, Bad characters haven't stuck in my head. I'm sure that if you were to mention some of them, but I don't think I remember the bad characters as much. Okay. Well, do you think that a good character can save a story um, more or less than a bad character can ruin it? Like, do you think bad characters have more power or good characters have more power? I think good, good characters. characters. I think people are more forgiving of bad characters if the rest of the story works or if it's like a popcorn movie, they don't care nearly as much, but good characterization can elevate uh, a substandard movie above and beyond. Okay. Let's each talk about our character tricks then. Like how we, the starting with you, Dave, you're, <laughs> you <laughs> Start get with me. Go ahead. Give me an example. <laughs> well, any of your characters, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll give, I'll give you some examples. Dave has written quite a few pedophiles. And um, that many, <laughs> dude, a handful. I yeah, think dude, I need to I've, bring out my second. I've hand. run more I, than Johnny. I've yeah. only seen. A few, I've only read a few of your books, and I've seen like five or six. Yeah. So that means that there's several. <laughs> They're per easy book. villains. Come on, <laughs> right? I think all of the Bricio shorts had pedophiles. In I think them. that CI has the largest word to pedophile <laughs> ratio. <laughs> pedophile to word ratio. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true. It's really we should true. frame it that it's not pro pedophile. Right? <laughs> That's true. No, Dave, Dave likes to punish pedophiles <laughs> in his in his work. But you've done pedophiles. You've done very very dark characters. <laughs> Dave's motto you, is: you want to punish um, a pedophile, you got to write a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> you you have the whole um that that character in Twelve who's like a um. Uh, a meth head, just racist, just you. We, we, CI has a rogues gallery of some. I live in Florida. Things. What do you expect? Okay, so <laughs> so how examples. do you how do you get because your characters are rich? I do believe yes. them. So how do you how do you go deep? How do you not get lost in the character? How do you make sure that there's enough there to terrify the reader to stick with the reader without sticking with you? Uh, I I think you just humanize them. You think about. You know, you, you figure out whatever justification they have for the way they are, and you try to make that apparent. Um, I think with a pedophile, it's it's pretty easy to in a, a degree because you think you think of who you're attracted to. You can't help who you're attracted to. You, you like redheads, or you like you know what whatever you like. You can't help it. So it's easy to write that because they can't help it. However, acting on it is sort of a different story, and I think that is. That's the area where they become the monsters. So I think it's easy to write that sort of character. A racist, I think, is easy because they feel justified for, you know, whatever shit has gone wrong in their life. They feel justified for hating a specific race for it. And I, I've seen examples of all sorts of these characters. 
basically the bad guy is the misunderstood hero in this their story. So you you're always looking for the thing that they can justify, the thing that they can hang it on, and so not only they can explain to themselves why they're the good good person in their story, but yeah. how anybody reading the story can at least, if not relate, they can at least understand. Yeah, and and I think I think we do that pretty well. I think the hardest character write character to write is like a true psychopath that that has that has no uh redeeming qualities no justification for anything that well, the joker the the joker oh, character Patrick Bateman in um in American Psycho is amazing in the book version because yeah, there's that nothing to me there is, he's a blank slate yeah that is harder to write because i can't i can't figure out a way to sort of humanize them and probably because you can't humanize somebody that far gone so I think those people are probably the most difficult. Well, to write. in American Psycho, that's the point. Like he, right. he isn't human. He's supposed to be a monster. I mean, the characters who really get me are there's a certain species because there's characters that you love, there's characters you hate, there's characters you love to hate, and then there's characters that you just hate, but they're not bad characters. So, um, it, it, do you remember um, Janice and the Sopranos? Oh yeah, of like course. I just. Like, I just, I don't know. There was this weird thing going every time I saw Janice where I just, it wasn't that I loved to hate her. She wasn't Baricio or something in the early seasons. It was just like, I just really, really wanted her gone. And at the same time, I, I kind of like reluctantly tipped my hat and said, I guess that's really good writing and good acting. Like, I hate her so <laughs> much. I want her gone. I want her dead. But still, like, I don't even know what to do with those characters. They're unpleasant for me. I'd re- I wish they didn't exist, but at the same time, I can't help but respect them. And one, one they make, well, they make it feel real. They make it feel like a, a real place. Yeah. Well, one other thought I had about uh, some of the characters we've written that are pedophile, like Paul Dodd, him uh, specifically, we go back and we talk about the abuse that made him into what he is and how that... Um, how that basically turned him into the monster that he became. And I think when you, when you do that, when, you, when you're able to show people what they were like before, you can see how they were also the victims. But you can't do it so much that the reader completely empathizes with them and suddenly doesn't want them to get their comeuppance. Well, you have to draw that line. or You have to understand that line and you have to be willing to um, take the time to draw a backstory and make sure that it relates directly to the the core story. So right now we have a an outline that kind of um, I don't know it's it's dragging a little bit, <laughs> and we had a bunch of backstory written for these characters. It's a it's a psychological thriller, and um, we needed to understand what the backstory was for our primary antagonist, our primary protagonist, and a couple of side characters, and and. So it went to the outline phase and it came back and there were these elaborate backstories and they they were they were decent enough backstories, but not for the characters and the story that we were writing. And what that means is you, you have to make sure that the backstory that you're telling is congruent with the character arc of the of the people that you're telling the story to. And so the thing that they need or want at the beginning and the growth that they need as a character is completely parallel or at least harmonizes with that backstory. And so what, what I was getting was this backstory that had nothing to do with who the person is now. It was a really interesting backstory, maybe, but it had nothing to do with the story. And so when you're developing your characters, don't just try to be 
you know, clever or quirky or think about what would make this interesting person, what would make the exact person right now that that like DNA cocktail is then going to dictate who the person becomes? Well, I think that maybe this may be a good way to tie up this discussion of characters is because you mentioned, um, you know, character arc and stuff. I think that that's 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 kind of the key here, right? Like, is you can just have characters and you can have plot and not recognizing that those two need to play together is, um, I think, a failure of a lot of stories. So do you want to talk a little bit about how the individual needs of a character, you know, who they are, what they want, what they're after, how they cope, what they need, how those things should relate to your larger story arc? <laughs> well, yeah, I think um, Bonnie's been a great teacher for that because it's what's tightening our outlines right now. When we have an ending that needs to make sense, it needs to make sense in relation to the character arc. So um, in the thing that I was talking about earlier that, that Jen and I were mapping out this morning, that's what it ultimately amounted to. Because we're trying to do something that we haven't really done before, which is not just create a serial, but kind of uh, do a reverse treatment for the whole entire season at once before we get into the meat of writing episode to episode to episode. And so we really need to figure out the arcs you know, let's take our primary characters and that's how we're doing it. Let's take our primary characters, understand who they are, where they need to go from the length of the season and then break it down. Okay, we could explore that in this episode and that in that episode and make sure that out of our primary characters, if we know what where they all are starting, where they need to end up, then we can have their midpoints kind of shuffled throughout the rest of the episodes. But if we're just playing it by ear, if we just create characters, so it's not enough to have characters. You have to know where those characters are going specifically because then you will make better narrative decisions along the way. So we know we have these characters. We know where they're starting. We know what they need. Therefore, we know what they want. We know what they'll eventually get, probably. And so we know the obstacles that make most sense to put in their way. And that just kind of helps us write a lot of the story naturally. A lot of the stuff that we need kind of just fills in the blanks. Um, uh, 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 really, I know we have to transition out, but um, but but Johnny, um, a few was it a, a month, two months ago? Um, I needed to figure out. Um, it was a, a really hard uh, narrative thing to figure out the core of our third inevitable book. Um, this is in the Robot Proletariat series, and um, I needed to make the sex bots matter, like deeply matter, because. They're, they're used really well in the first book and they're used really well in the second book. And they're really funny. But so far, we had managed to walk this really cool line by keeping them relevant and hilarious. And I really wanted that for the third book. But if we didn't figure out what their actual why was, um, then everything is lost. It, it doesn't matter. It's empty. It's like, okay, well, now there's these cardboard characters that are there for comic relief. And that wasn't enough. And we really did crack that nut. I love the solution that we came up with for, for that third book. But it's all tied into what the sex bots actually want and need and desire as a, as a species. And until we explored that, they were really just a prop for the third book. And so anytime you you, you figure out how can I... Because that's what authors do a lot, I think, especially when you're first figuring it out and you are in more of that amateur phase, which we spent many, many years in. So there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's an exploratory phase. But when you're there, that's very natural. Your characters tend to be 
props, even if you write good characters. I think CI always had good characters, but even from the beginning, our our best characters were still Baricio, even at his best in the early days, was still a prop for us to tell a story that we wanted to tell. Yeah, there are means to an end. And then when you start, when your characters start coming alive, they won't stay props. They they won't. They start fucking with your narrative because it's like, well, hold on, I'm not just going to be the bad guy. I have an agenda too. Let I mean, let's take um, when we talk about character arc and characters working. I'm sorry, character arc and plot arc working together. Let's take um, a, an example that I think everybody's going to be re- be able to relate to because we can talk more op- openly and people know it. Is like think of something really simple like Finding Nemo. So, Finding Nemo. The story is that Nemo gets lost, and Marlon and Dory. Are spoilers okay for this one, Dave? <laughs> yeah, I've seen Finding Nemo. Marlon and Dory. Not my favorite Pixar movie, by the way. Have to find Nemo. Okay. So like, okay. So imagine, imagine a Da Vinci style retelling of this where it's just like this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And it could have just been this story of like, okay, a fish gets lost. Let's find that fish. And that doesn't sound like a very exciting story. Even if you recount, okay, well, so the dentist takes Nemo and it only works because the, the arc of Nemo and of Marlon, Marlon's the dad, um, is they have like Nemo needs to learn independence or he needs to he needs to accept confidence be- because despite what he's been told he's not in- he's not weak because he's got the little fin and his dad needs to let him go his dad needs to reach the conclusion that do you remember when Craig Mazin did this whole thing at the Austin Film Festival it was great i wish i could remember oh, the details yeah. but there are several moments in that arc where you know um, Marlon has to believe that Nemo is dead after they come out of the net and that sort of thing. Because without that, without him making the decision, like feeling that he's failed, then it just feels like a forced decision. It feels like something that's ham-fisted in by the author. But when the characters, you see them genuinely like, then you realize they've really changed when they've truly been tested. And a good plot and a character arc will work together so that the events that happen in the plot change the character and the character is changed by the plot. They're like a braid. I, I will say one um one one weakness I have in the whole character thing is that, like when I'm plot, like when we did the the beats for White Space uh, season three, uh, there were certain characters that um, I I don't think I fully um, had been dialed into them until I started writing, and when I started writing, I started remembering, oh yeah, you know the things that happened in the last two books would affect them a little bit differently than we originally outlined. So that's when I start changing story. And that's when the character starts pushing back. Right. Right. And like, okay, well, why is he not more affected by, you know, the death of his best friend and all, all these little things that like, Oh yeah, I didn't think of that in the outline stage. And I can't really, it's hard for me to do that until I get into the character's heads, but yeah. Okay. So do you want to just finish up our discussion of character here and we'll be moving next into setting? Uh, yeah, I would, I would close by suggesting, and we'll talk about this a little more next time, but that it's helpful sometimes to think of setting as a character. Um, you know, once you have your actual cast and, okay, here's the people who are going to tell the story, um, one of the final characters that you can cast is your setting. And we can talk more deeply about that next time. So we'll talk about that in, in the next episode. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Adios. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Story Studio Podcast. 
Are you wondering what the ever-growing demand for superb storytelling skills means for your future? Check out our latest interview as Johnny and Sean dive deep into that question in Storytelling is the Future, how to build on your self-publishing success. Download the interview from the info box or show notes in YouTube or head over to sterlingandstone.net slash future.